Hello, my name's Adam Spring, and you might call this an extended interest in Remotely Interested Podcast number 24. So in that podcast, we spoke to Michael Kalari about his career in professional wrestling. And in that episode, I mentioned an author by the name of Tyson Smith. Also, uh, in the world of professional wrestling, Tyson Smith is a real name of Kenny Omega. Anyway, Dr. Tyson Smith, the well-renowned sociologist, wrote a book called Fighting for Recognition, which is all about his experiences of doing an ethnographic study on the indie or independent professional wrestling scene within the United States. I caught up with Tyson, and he was very kind enough to extend upon some of the stuff that we talked about in the Michael Kulari episode. So the way this one is going to work, I am going to leave it over to Tyson in a minute to talk about his uh, his great work. And I'm not going to add a conclusion to this, but what we might do is in the next episode, because our guest for that episode is going to be a surprise, Ravi and I will maybe talk about it a little bit in the introduction. Anyway, for now, uh, you've, you've heard enough from me, and I'm about to go over to Tyson himself. It started with uh, a relationship, so um, I think like a lot of things in life, it, there was a person I met, and he was a very interesting guy. He was a young guy, probably early 20s. He was a student. He was a little bit just unorthodox, had a really interesting conversation with him about... Uh, race and masculinity and football and being a former police officer and all these things and then he said just sort of casually oh well I'm also you know a wrestling promoter and I was like what are you talking about and sure enough I just sort of started to look into it and here was this big kind of underground scene of professional wrestling not really underground but but out of the mainstream and something that I was not aware of. And it was flourishing not far from the university where I was in New York. And so I just sort of checked it out. And that led me to a bunch of guys who were practicing in a old uh, garage. And it was um, maybe 15 guys in their mid to late teens and early 20s, a few older, primarily white, but not all. And they were in this beat-up auto body garage that had a ring in the middle, and they were learning, training to be professional wrestlers for these shows that they would then sort of produce and, and um, um, put on. And I just was like, this this is an interesting puzzle and I should see what's going on here because I was kind of intrigued by the performance of masculinity that was this, this you know, kind of exaggerated um, hyperbole of, of um, bravado and violence and aggression and dominance and how that seemed um you know what why was that appealing to these guys when it seemed you know so kind of campy and uh anachronistic and um kind of like hard to um 
you know, just it's just sort of hard to for me to um, like something. It, it was something that I had not considered, and yet here it was, really captivating for them, really uh, important to them, and you know, immediately I could see that there was a lot of risk involved, a lot of injuries and a lot of real pain, not just the, the act of pain. So that's that's sort of how it launched and how it got off the ground. There were a couple of things that I was wondering when I was observing this stuff. Why would you do this? And then also the other part of it was I was kind of amazed by, amazed by the peer-to-peer learning element of it as well. Did, you know, as an educator, did you pick up on any of that at all? Or were you just looking at what you were looking at from the, the masculinity point of view? Well, I spent a lot of time with them in their training and going to their practices and in their locker rooms and just commuting and seeing how it was done and how it was taught. So, yeah, I, I, they a lot of it is uh, this kind of formal and informal tutelage and education where they um, teach one another how to do it and the history of it and the uh, tricks and techniques and pitfalls and advantages and there's a sort of a knowledge and a um, kind of cultural capital, social capital that's being exchanged with one on one another all the time. They would take a lot of interest because I know you're sort of interested in the media aspects of it. A lot, a lot of, a lot of it flows through these old tapes and former matches and historical shows that they talk about a lot and trade with one another and um, kind of carry on in, in, in their ongoing relationships with one another so so tradition and rich and history is is really important to them it's now in that sort of youtube era it probably looks a little different this was you know when i was collecting the data it was more than 10 years ago so they would still be often like trading tapes or you know exchanging forms of like archival material you know that were sometimes like it, it, like tangible forms, not not just like uh, uh, gigabytes and <laughs> things like that. Just particularly the American style of professional wrestling, because obviously you know in in the famous mythologies based essay on uh, professional wrestling, there's a discussion of the difference between say French professional wrestling and American professional wrestling. Was this primarily a certain era of wrestling, or were they going through and looking at it as you know an entire sort of for the tapes, like a visual art form and stuff like that? They generally spoke about it as like indie wrestling and tried to kind of carve out some distinction from the WWE wrestling, but the two are pretty similar. So it's more American and than anything else. And they, um, if anything, maybe there were some parallels and some things taken from Lucha Libre and more Mexican style. But uh, I did not really sense any sort of European elements. It's it's an interesting question as to sort of exactly the the, the variety that was most um, 
prevalent. And I guess I would say, yeah, American and then uh, in addition, uh, so the, the additional qualifier being indie wrestling, which they, they did sort of really kind of um, frame it as indie wrestling that was distinct from WWE. But um, I would say that has more to do with the kind of way in which WWE was more corporate and big money and then indie they perceived and really kind of framed as being more sort of authentic and real and local and non-corporate and genuine you know all of all those things that we often um kind of attribute to independent at the time because this was the mid-2000s when you were doing this research right that was around about the time frame when you were doing it yes how were they sort of promoting their shows? Was it at that time word of mouth or were they looking at things like at the time it would have been things like MySpace and maybe Facebook was emerging? Were they looking at any of that? Was it or was it primarily word of mouth that they were doing? Word of mouth, they would they would do a lot with with flyers and, and uh hard copy and they would post things on telephone poles but also, you know, sell tickets through their networks and their friends and their friends of friends. And they had websites. The websites were pretty important. They um, would put um, a lot of information on the websites, but and 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 at that point there were also, if, if you know, you remember, it was just more things like message boards and and um, types of websites that were, I guess like more likely for this kind of scene at that point. So, um, yeah, the, the web was really important to them in terms of the promotion and the, um, information that was exchanged. But, uh, what's crazy is that just in the sort of, I guess, 15 years or less that, uh, have passed, we've you know already changed how we're using the web and social media was not a big part of it at the time what would you say in terms of the psychology that was in play between the relationship with the audience and the relationship backstage what are the things that you picked up on um in those two areas when you were doing this long-term observation well it's essential that you tell a story and uh your audience, the audience that's that's outside the ring, is um, right in the center of this, right? So you, you've got to uh, generate heat. You've got to get them to care, get the audience to care. So in many ways, that is just rule number one and the most important thing. It's, it's more important than the physicality. So the best performers were those guys who could just get the fans right where they wanted them. And they would do that very skillfully by manipulating emotions and by telling a convincing story and by getting them to care, you know, whether that was sort of get them angry or to get them excited or to get them, you know, really hungry for revenge or for some, some reaction. So 
the physicality part was important, but it really was, you know, sort of secondary to the, to the fact that like, you gotta, you gotta get them to care. Then that physicality part is so much more important, you know, with, without that story, without caring, it's, it's, it's really quite useless. Um, so the psychology is, you know, central to, to everything they're doing. It's, um, the more experienced guys developed it better and the newer, greener guys, you know, that was a, a large part of what they were trying to like develop and, um, learn how to do. I mean, I guess that was one of the, the things that sort of you, you might get more surprised by is that like as they became more skilled and more developed and more experienced, they often were doing much less physically and, and they were just much more, you know, adept at the psychology. So, you know, granted there's injuries and there's all the kind of compromising of your body and the sacrifice that makes it harder to do those physical things. There's also uh, sort of coinciding with that is like, well, you know, I, I can do a lot more uh, with the crowd and with this story and with the show, with this match by doing these sets of things and sort of doing less physicality. And that, you know, that's, um, takes a while to learn and it's not easy. And, uh, it is a, a large part of where you see the, like, you know, sort of growth and development and, 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 um, trajectory of, of the, the best performers is the psychology how does the backstage relationship impact where they are on the card because it seems as though that has it's not just about necessarily connecting with the fan it's fans it also seems as though it's the interpersonal relationships in place that can determine how you how well you do i mean it's probably like most work organizations where your capital within the place is going to help you on the the card but um the people that are the best performers are going to be, you know, the the headliners or, or the main matches. And uh, those best performers are typically the ones who just get the crowd going and get them screaming. And uh, they don't have to be necessarily the biggest or the... Uh, most high flying or the the most um physically um gifted as much as they need to be the ones who are um really you know able to read a crowd and um have their character fit into something larger that the crowd cares about and to be, you know, charismatic and, and, uh, something that is, is, you know, eliciting passion. And that's why I call that article, you know, passion work because it's, um, it's, it's a type of kind of work and skill and emotional labor that is largely about, eliciting passion from from the uh from the fans and the crowd uh now 
the bookers and promoters, they all kind of know each other too. So if you're really good at all those things, but people don't like you, that kind of is tough. So it does matter. You're kind of where you are on that, like kind of pecking order, if you will, within the group. It's, it's a scene where mostly people know each other. So even if they aren't sort of training in the same place, you know, they've kind of done a show together or they've spent half hour at one point in the locker room getting ready or talking about things and learning from each other, et cetera. So rarely are two people just complete strangers going into the ring together. They, they've sort of have a sense of each other and then they discuss and plan out, you know, loosely or sometimes not so loosely what they're going to do in the ring to generate that heat, to generate that, you know, passion and get the pop that they want. How important is that, that level of trust of knowing that, you know, what move you're going to do with each other is basically, it could paralyze you, for example. Do you know what I mean? Spend um, almost a chapter talking about this where it's highly intimate in that respect. So, they need to know that, um, you know, when I jump off that 10 foot ladder or from the top of the ring post and I'm jumping down and even though we're supposedly enemies or opponents, you're going to be breaking that fall. Um, you're going to be putting your arm out and in, in the right position and in enough shape or in enough, have enough knowledge to prevent a major injury. Now there are injuries, but you know, you're still, you know, minimizing that risk and there is a certain um, trust and understanding that is shared and it's really important. And if someone screws it up, they typically apologize and or um, have consequences or, um, you know, it's it's known and it's um, important that, you know, people don't mess up and then if they do, it's, you know, there, there's sort of anger and a lot of um, discussion about that. Now, the only thing that can change that is if, you know, there's a sort of big difference in that hierarchy of, you know, like if, uh, you know, a lot of the guys who are lower on the hierarchy, if they get a match with a big shot guy, it's a big deal for them. It's a big moment for them. And they really don't want to screw up something like that. And they get quite nervous more nervous for exactly what we're talking about here, more nervous that they could injure their fellow sort of opponent than necessarily, you know, the nervousness about how the crowd will respond to their performance. And did you um, become friends or remain any friendships with any of the people that you studied when you were doing the book? Yeah, I mean, they, um, you know, through Facebook, I'm connected with a few of them. I, uh, I'm no longer near them um in you know i'm in another state and moved uh away actually yeah like almost 10 years ago i had left new york so it wasn't easy to kind of return to shows or to keep up um but it's you know i i, I occasionally hear from some of them and vice versa and i i get updates through facebook and things like that about certain shows and a lot of them are still at it they're really committed to it and 
just like I found in the original ethnographic work, they it's really until their body can't take it anymore that they are uh, doing it. So mid to late thirties or something like around there when, when they kind of like can just no longer stay at it. And of course, you know, there's a, there's other life demands at that point too, but, but they would really keep up with their wrestling if, if they weren't um, prevented uh, physically for the most part. Why do you think people are wrestling fans? Oh, I mean, the same way we're movie fans or fans of most entertainment. I mean, we don't, you know, I, I, I know that, uh, uh, Brad Pitt is not really an astronaut when he is in that movie. Um, so it doesn't matter though, cause I suspend that and I, um, absorb the entertainment and the depiction and uh, care about the character and care about the overall story and the larger um, arc and narrative and relationships between each other. So it's, it's, um, it's really like most forms of entertainment where it doesn't, you know, you suspend that disbelief and that is uh, common in, in many um, forms of entertainment. And why do you think the wrestler putting their body through that punishment for something that's supposedly predetermined? Well, you know, in terms of the outcome in one respect. Well, I mean, why do they keep doing it? Because they love it. And it's uh, it's a community they're a part of. It's a identity that they care about. It's a routine that is an alternate to your everyday life of, you know, doing customer service or being a clerk at CVS or teaching kids in school. Here you step out of that realm and you're in this spotlight and you've got 200, 300 fans yelling at you and screaming and it's invigorating and it's this adoration and this response from people that is proving and giving you a visceral reaction that is like hard to match in your other social spheres of life. So it's totally gratifying in that way. And, um, a lot of times they are not able to get anywhere near the same kind of recognition that they they do from these shows even if it is just once a month or it's every other month and it comes with a concussion or a herniated disc or a broken wrist or um a chipped tooth or um all these other kind of common injuries that that they experience and did any of the wrestlers that you came in contact with, did they go on and make a full-time living out of it in bigger organizations at all? One guy did, yes. And um, I saw him back in the indies recently, but he did go on to do some broadcasting work with the WWE. So he had wrestled and then he got a position doing a little bit more of like the color commentary or the ringside announcing. Um, the other 
there were some other guys that were not part of my immediate sample, but they kind of came through the shows sometimes. So I met them and spoke with them, but, um, you know, they, they might've been training or part of an, a different promotion that did a show at, at one of the group's sort of shows. And so, yeah, they, they're, they're, uh, several of them I have seen on TV at later points, but, um, none of them became superstars or anything like that, but that, that's not too surprising. I mean, it's kind of like a lot of forms of entertainment where there's this small little number at the top that, or percentage at the top that sort of goes on to be a star. And then there's this whole slew of people that are never going to be household names and that are just doing it, you know, whether that's like, whether we're, whether we're talking about American football players or authors of books or pro wrestlers, there that's the case for so many sort of entertainment and industries where where they you know there's a whole mass of people that aren't like household names but did kind of make it to the big time, if you will. Yeah, and you know, how do you feel about being you know? Kenny Omega, his real name is Tyson Smith. How do you feel about being, you know, the, the other Tyson Smith in professional wrestling? Yeah, that's funny. I mean, I uh, thought just all I can think is like when I when I started uh, doing a PhD, I never thought that I would need to put an initial before my name, and then like it turns out that I guess well we knew Smith was very common but i guess tyson smith is a popular enough name that like there's an i think not only a comic artist but a pro football player and a pro wrestler with that same name along with a sociologist so yeah i wonder what uh that tyson smith has um (laughs) if they have any sense of the book that i wrote (laughs) I don't know. The Remotely Interested podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, YouTube, and Facebook, not to mention many more as new platforms get created. Like us at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash remotely dot interested. Follow us on Twitter at that interested. And also feel free to reach out to us either on Twitter or via email contact at remotely dash interested.com.